Welcome to our time of gathered worship as the community of Fellowship Church. I have a question for us to consider as we begin our time together. What brings you here today? Why are you here? Perhaps it's habit, duty, or obligation. Maybe it's because somebody was counting on you to be here. Maybe you are celebrating and it seems right to offer your praise to God and connect with others. Maybe you are experiencing despair and discouragement and you're seeking God's face for hope and perseverance. Maybe you are eager to grow in your faith and in your spiritual journey and you're here to be equipped with others who want the same thing. Maybe you're curious about God and faith and need a place to test out your doubts and questions. Or maybe you are experiencing loneliness and coming here this morning is an effort to reach out for connection. Whatever our reasons for gathering today, the reality and the underlying truth of the matter is that it is God who is seeking after us. It is God who loved us first. Friends, it is God who has called us here and invited us to worship. The creator of the universe, the one who cares for all of creation so powerfully and tenderly is the same God that loves our souls and sent Jesus to restore our relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 104, and I invite you to stand as we hear these words, consider how the God who cares for creation knows us, loves us, and actively cares for each one of us. Hear these words. Praise the Lord, my soul. God makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. God made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. All creatures look to you, O God, to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. We will sing to the Lord all our lives. We will sing praise to our God as long as we live. May our meditation be pleasing to him as we rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's join our voices together in singing.
God, we bring our full selves here, whether we recognize it or not, the selves that we try to hide from others, the selves that we have yet to discover, the self that you know best. And we come to be reminded that regardless of what we have done or what we haven't done, regardless of how we view ourselves or are yet to view ourselves, you still love us. And we come to this spot to remember that you have claimed us as your own. May we live in the freedom of that love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, today, friends, we have the great joy of celebrating baptism together, and we do so because Jesus said so. He invited us to do so. And Jesus himself was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And there's a great invitation offered by the apostle Peter After the first Christian sermon, he offers an invitation to all the people gathered around, and I invite you to say it with me. It's from Acts chapter 2. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In Christian churches almost everywhere, baptism is recognized as a sacrament, a holy mystery, a visible word, an embodiment of grace. It is a sacred coming together of normal visible things like water and sacred spiritual things like covenantal belonging. And in baptism, the primary symbol is water because Water cleanses, water purifies, water refreshes, and water sustains. Jesus Christ is the living water. And so today, friends, as we are soon to witness baptisms, you are also invited to remember your own baptism as well. For in our baptism, God promises to forgive our sins and wash us clean to unite us unto Christ in his death and his resurrection, to adopt us into the body of Christ, the church, 
to send the Holy Spirit upon us to strengthen and sustain us and send us into God's world and also to assure us of everlasting life. Baptism is a great celebration. We have a few families that we're going to introduce you to that we are baptizing uh, individuals this morning. These are our elders, uh, membership elders, or uh, baptism elders. So Jane and the others are going to share us a little bit here. Morning, Fellowship Church. Good morning. On behalf of the Board of Elders of Fellowship Church, and with great joy, I present to you George and Desmine Hassan, who are bringing their daughter, Amy Janatul, for baptism. Please come forward if you're here. I haven't seen them yet, so I don't know if they're here. But if you're here, please come forward. And same with the next ones as we announce. <laughs> I present to you Stephen and Stacy Skinner, who are bringing their son, Silas James, for baptism. Come on up. And I present to you Mike and Mercedes McDonald, who are bringing their daughter, Eloin May, for baptism. Hmm. Got it. So adorbs. <laughs> uh, would you, would you all pray with me, friends? We thank you, O oh God, for the gift of baptism. In this water, you confirm to us that we are buried with Christ in his death and raised to share in his resurrection and are being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Pour out on us, and especially these little ones, your Holy Spirit, so that those here baptized may be washed clean and receive new life. To you be all honor and glory, dominion and power, now and forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Significant day uh, for you, families, and for the children. Um, and so we're going to ask you some significant questions, parents especially, um, but the uh, children can, uh, Silas, you can answer too if you'd like to. Um, but we'll use the words on the screen. Parents, do you acknowledge today the love of God, a love that has gone before us, continually surrounds us, and cannot be taken from us? They said I do. They said I do. I was waiting for the next. Do you renounce sin and the power of evil in your life and in this world? <laughs> Who is your Lord and Savior? Amen. They answer those questions. Oh, I, there's one more. One I, I, more. I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't take my cues. I, I, <laughs> One more question, parents. I apologize. Do you promise in your hearts and in to, in your hearts and in your home to celebrate the truth of God's word, to seek salvation through Jesus Christ, to pray for your family and to teach them to pray, and do you promise to lift high the way of Jesus in your worship and deeds through worship and the nurture of the church? Hey, there we go. Let's give it up for these parents. They're having to come on. Let's go. Big questions. Good job. Hey, as they make their promises, we also make promises to them. We are a covenant community together. So would you actually stand for a moment? And we're going to uh, offer the words that are on the screen as our promise to them in terms of joining and following Jesus together and raising these little ones in the faith. Together we say, as a covenant community called Fellowship Church, 
we promise to love, encourage, and support these families by teaching the gospel of God's love, by being an example of Christian faith and character, and by giving the strong support of God's people in fellowship, prayer, and service. Very good. You may be seated. And I was going to have the great honor of doing the first baptism here, but it looks like we're missing George and Era and Amy. So one last call. If you're here, please do come forward. Otherwise, we miss you, and maybe you're homesick and joining us online or something like that. You may recognize those names as they just joined as new members last week, and we were eager to baptize uh, the daughter, uh, Amy Janatool. But that will be another day. You then? Yeah. Come on. Hey, one of the cool things that just happened, you might not know this, is that two of the baptism elders have their children and grandchildren up here. Uh, And what a cool thing that uh, Sherry Graham got to introduce her grandson, and then Nancy McDonald got to introduce her granddaughter. And now I get to baptize Elwyn May. Elwyn May, the the verse that your parents chose for you, comes from Joshua Isn't that a precious picture? Come on, let's go. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Can I I hold her or do you want to hold her? Oh, yes. Can I hold you for a second? How about that? We're going to go take a little walk over here. Elohim May, I have a good news for you. The best news of all, that God loves you. And he calls you his own, and he knows you by name. It was for you, Elohim May, that Christ came into this world. It was for you he lived, for you he died, and for you he conquered death. All this, though you know nothing of it, we love because Christ first loved us. Elohim May, I baptize you in the name of the Father. And of the Son, so warm it and of the Holy Spirit. Elowen, welcome to the family. You are a child of God. Hmm. Give it up for Elowen me. How precious. She's like, oh. All right, well, I get to hang out with Silas. Hey, buddy. You ready? You ready? You sure? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is Silas. Um, and Silas, your parents picked, I know, this verse for you. Uh, it's from Isaiah chapter 26. Uh, he will keep in perfect peace all those who trust in him, whose thoughts turn often to the Lord. And so trust in the Lord, Silas, always for the Lord, Jehovah, is your everlasting strength. So Silas, can I tell you a most incredible truth about you. Yeah? Silas, um, you are God's beloved and the savior of the world knows your name. Silas, it is for you that Christ came into the world. It is for you that Christ lived. It is for you that Christ died. And it is for you that Christ conquered death. And so silence, Silas, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, In the name of the Holy Spirit, amen, amen. Silas, welcome to the family. (laughs) 
Jesus Christ, the only King and Head of the Church, we declare that these children are now received into the Holy Catholic Church, engaged to profess uh, their faith in Jesus Christ and to be God's faithful servants until their life's end. Let's one more time celebrate and welcome these uh, children into the family of Fellowship Church. You can return to your seats. We have gifts for you off to that side. And as we remember our own baptism and that we are children of God, let's sing together of this truth. This song has stated that we each individually are children of God, but also look around you. They're also the children of God. Let's 
keep that in mind as we pass the peace to one another. That is because of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection, that we have peace not only with God, but with one another. Would you share a sign of that peace? The peace of Christ be with you.
Good morning. My name is Bryce Vanderstelt. I'm the Minister of Youth and Young Adults. And man, I love a bell choir. Uh, that was wonderful. Thank you, bell choir, for that. Uh, this morning, I want to welcome you to Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, we skipped announcements last week, so we have double duty this morning. So stick with me, but I promise they're all uh, pertinent to our life together. Uh, first off, if you're uh, visiting with us this morning or if you have family here this morning, a reminder, our connection cards is a great way for us to know that you were here. We love to know who's with us on Sunday mornings, uh, so you can fill this out. Also, if you're a member, maybe you'd like the church to reach out to you and you've been wondering, how do I ask for that? Again, that's on this card too, so uh, feel free to fill those out. You can put these in the offering plates in the back, those wooden bowls at the back of the sanctuary by the doors. Also in those bowls, if you would like to give financially uh, to what the church is doing, you can give there with cash or check as well. You can also give online. Uh, and we pool all of our resources together. We take offerings so that we can do more together as a community than we could individually apart. There was a few weeks ago, it's hard to believe now as we look outside and the snow has pretty much gone away, but a few weeks ago we were in a flurry of snow days going on. And something that happens in our community is we do hand-to-hand -hand. in that ministry. We uh, hand out uh, bags of food each week to kids who need, who don't have enough food at home. So on the weekend, they have food. And a few weeks ago, they knew on a Friday that it was going to be a snow day. And that's normally the day that they would deliver the hand-to-hand -hand bags. And instead of just saying, well, we'll just skip it because... The school day's happening. A bunch of volunteers got a call at 8 a.m. on that Thursday, and we're like, hey, can you come to church today, and can we pack these all, and can we get them to the school, and can we get them to the lockers where they need to go? And a bunch of people responded to that, and I believe we got 212 bags out that day. And we just want to say thank you to volunteers like that who don't only just help when they know it's going to happen, but also to volunteers who help when they're called on in the morning and just say, we need help now. Um, I also think it's amazing that this 212, this is just one week of hand-to-hand -hand bags. Uh, that's not, you know, the, we, we do that weekly. So our money goes to things like that, our life together, we serve together in that way. Uh, another thing that's coming up, a way that I want to invite you uh, into the youth ministry world in a few weeks is on March 3, we have our fundraiser for our youth mission trips. This year, the high school group is going to be going to Mayfield, Kentucky. We're going to be doing some tornado relief work down there. And our middle school group at the end of July is going to be heading over to a mission conference they go to each year. And that's a chance for middle schoolers to learn about how people are on mission uh, locally and in the world as well. And we raise money. One way we invite you as a congregation into that is through this fundraising because we want to make these trips as accessible to all students uh, so that we make these trips as affordable as possible. And that is going to be done with our raffle and lunch. So that's going to be in the table to table on March 3. One way you can take part in that is just showing up, free will donation. You get some food. The other way is through the raffle and giving towards that. Right now we are in the process of trying to get items for the raffle. And that's kind of the ask today as we prepare for that. If you would like to donate something to the raffle, uh, we would love to hear from you, whether that's, we've had people do dinners at their houses before, we've had people buy gift cards or do different experiences. So if you have something in mind, if you're like, hey, I'd love to take people out on my boat in the summer and make like a night of it, stuff like that is great. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. You can either just catch me and talk to me. Also in the bulletin, there's a QR code you can scan. You can also talk to, they don't know I'm about to throw it to, you can also talk to Jerry and Sandy if you guys could wave to 
uh, they help me organize kind of the incoming things as well. So uh, we'd love to have you involved in that way. This Wednesday, as we worship together this morning, we continue worship uh, this Wednesday as we enter the Lenten season with our Ash Wednesday service. There is a meal at 545. If you come to community nights normally, the meals at the same time, services at 630, our normal children's uh, programs, youth programs, and adult classes will be put on pause this week so that we can all worship together uh, at the Ash Wednesday service. Finally, Church Retreat is coming up in about a month, uh, March 8 through 10. Uh, we had this a, few, a number of years ago, and we're bringing it back, as, and we want to invite you. This is a retreat where we go up to Timberwolf, and it's a retreat for the entire church. So uh, if you have kids, they're invited. If you don't have kids, you're invited. Uh, any age group, this is something for everyone. Uh, and we have over 100 people signed up already, but we're greedy, and we want more of you to come. We're greedy for your time and energy. We want to have a fun weekend together where we can grow in community as a group. You can find out more information right outside this door. Uh, there's more pictures and slides and someone after the service who can answer more questions for you. Stick with me on this one. We're going to dismiss kids, but today, don't ask me why. It's a little weird today. Okay, so I'm going to dismiss kids who are three years through first to children in worship, and then sixth through eighth grade are going to Sunday school. So those students who are leaving are three years through first grade and sixth through eighth grade. You are dismissed to your places. The rest of us will stand and continue in worship. you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful for the gift 
that this is, uh, for the opportunities for brothers and sisters, for friends to gather together in your name and to sing to you and to pray to you and to greet one another in your name and to study the scriptures together. Lord, as we turn toward those scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, and that you would open our hearts that we might love and trust. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. If I've not yet met you, my name is Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And um, happy Super Bowl Sunday or Taylor Swift Bowl Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, so we are in a series that we've been calling Curios. Uh, Curios uh, is the Greek word for Lord. And the series, we're exploring Jesus as Lord. Uh, and in the series, we're asking the question what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? And the Gospel of Mark is a rather interesting place from which to explore this, this question of what it means for Jesus to be Lord, because Mark's Gospel seems to be particularly wrestling with this question of Christ's Lordship. Uh, the Gospel of Mark raises the question of Jesus' Lordship uh, in countless ways and in countless stories over the course of its mere 16 chapters. Uh, there are miraculous healings. There are children revived from the dead. There are calmed storms. There are miraculous feedings. There are powerful teachings. Each and every one of these stories tells us quite emphatically that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does it mean for Christ to be Lord? And not just in the abstract sense or in the doctrinal or theological sense or, or what, is the, what is the actual difference that Christ's Lordship makes for me or for you? And particularly, we don't live in a place or in a country or in a time where we have Lord's like if one of your colleagues or one of your bosses told you to call, you, call them Lord, you would, you would think that was kind of odd and peculiar, right? Like what exactly does it mean for Christ to be Lord and specifically my Lord or your Lord? Today's text invites us to consider the Lordship of Jesus Christ yet again, but in a rather peculiar narrative that seems almost a bit unflattering for the Messiah, seems to almost unprove or disprove Christ's Lordship it's a text that begs the question, is Christ Lord? And if so, what kind of Lord is he? So hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 1. And Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And Jesus could no, do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And Jesus marveled because of the people's unbelief. And Jesus went about, went about among the villages teaching and he called the 12 disciples and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out, the apostles, two by two, and proclaimed that people should repent. And then they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text today picks up with Jesus in familiar Jewish territory. Uh, now, to catch you up on the first season of Jesus' life and ministry, uh, Jesus begins all the way back in chapter one of Mark, uh, teaching in the synagogue. And then Jesus casts out a demon. And then Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then he heals a bunch of people who were sick and possessed with demons at Peter's mother-in-law's house. And then he goes from there to the synagogue to teach again. And then he heals a man with leprosy. And then he heals a paralyzed man that's been lowered through his roof. And then he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And then some demons recognize him and Jesus silences them. And then Jesus teaches in a synagogue some more. And then he calms a storm. And then he heals a guy with thousands of demons over in the Decapolis. And then Jesus returns to familiar Jewish territory and he heals a woman who's been bleeding for over a decade back in Jewish territory. And then he revives a little girl from the dead. You know, just a typical month out in the field with the Messiah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Jesus has just returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And Nazareth is a relatively obscure town. We don't know very much about it. The only thing we do know is that it is unremarkable and nothing exceptional comes from there. We know that Nazareth was about four miles from Sepphoris. Sepphoris is a capital city that was built by uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, now, Nazareth isn't the great city. It's the city next to, or the town next to the great city. Uh, Nazareth isn't the great city with the Chick-fil-A and the Starbucks and the IMAX theater and the art museums and the killer sports team and the college filled with amazing, brilliant rabbis for you to study under. No, Nazareth is the small town next to the great city. And yet Jesus returns to this unremarkable hometown and as is his custom in every place that he goes, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins to teach. And the people are stunned at his teaching, but not necessarily in a good way. Because if Nazareth is the unremarkable town next to the great city, then Jesus is the unremarkable boy from the town who grew up there. Is not this the carpenter, they ask? Jesus would have learned the family trade, which was carpentry. Now there's some debate over whether Jesus worked with stone or whether he worked with wood. In either case, Jesus's hands would have been quite rough and calloused and maybe even a little bit scarred. He might've been missing or maybe had a couple blackened fingernails. How are such mighty works done by these rough, calloused, unsightly hands that people ask? And while everyone would have respected the hard, backbreaking work of carpentry, after all, this is a town of hardworking people, they would have known that Jesus didn't have time to go off to study much more about the scriptures than they already knew. And certainly not to study under a great rabbi. Did we miss the day when he went off to rabbi school, they might ask? You see, they expect to greet a carpenter in the streets. They expect to even grab a fermented beverage with a carpenter at the pub. They might even expect to pool their money together to buy materials with the carpenter. What they did not expect was for the carpenter to stand up in the synagogue and begin to teach them. Where did this guy learn all of this, they ask. What kind of wisdom has been given to him, they ask. Now, this is also a very patrilineal culture, which means that people are referred to by the name of their father, not, never, rarely their mother. Now, it's entirely possible that Joseph has died at this point, but it's also possible that they're poking fun at Jesus's birth story. 
Isn't this just Jesus, the son of Mary, they ask? You remember that story she made up, impregnated by God. Yeah, okay. The shame that girl caused her poor family back in my day. Back in my day, we would have stoned such a girl. Wait, so it's a small town. Small town. Some of us grew up in small towns like this. Some of us grew up in places where people know every single detail of your life and your family's life. And what they don't know, maybe they fill in because, you know, never let the truth get in the way of juicy gossip. Uh, (laughs) So much so that the text says they are not just surprised by Jesus' teaching. They are offended by him. They are scandalized by him. They can hardly believe that the wisdom of God, that the power of God, that the glory of God would somehow be knit together with this mere calloused hand muggle, this mortal standing before them. But it's not just the townspeople who are stunned. The text, people, the text says that Jesus is also stunned. He's stunned by their unbelief. And as a result, the text says that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works in their town. It's almost like their familiarity with Jesus caused them to reject him and any powerful works that he might do there. Familiarity has a way of becoming a stumbling block to faith, does it not? Because it gets stuck on what it already knows. In fact, familiarity uses this word already quite a bit. It's, what it's, about, it's about what's already been done or what's already been heard or what's already known. And because of that, it can't stretch or expand or grow It doesn't even have the strength to wrestle with the mystery of the Christ that is right in front of them. Their familiarity with Jesus caused them to reject Jesus and any powerful works that he might do in their midst. But that raises a rather uncomfortable question for us. What does it say about Jesus' lordship that he can't do very many miracles in his hometown? That their unbelief, that their lack of belief is amazing to him. It's stunning to him. It's almost surprising to him. Like, wait a second, is Jesus not powerful enough to do miracles there? Is he really Lord? What is Mark trying to tell us? Well, I think the next story helps to unpack this a bit for us. As Jesus leaves his hometown, he goes to some of the other villages teaching them the scriptures too. And as he does, he calls the 12 disciples to himself and he begins to send them out two by two. Now, this is not just for safety reasons or, or even for the sake of companionship. Uh, in the Old Testament, when a testimony was heard, there needed to be at least two witnesses to verify. Jesus is sending them out in pairs to witness to something. Now, what are they witnesses to? Two patterns, two patterns in Mark that I want to show you to help us get, get at that. The first one uh, is that Jesus uh, does something really interesting. He gives his disciples authority. He, uh, he hands off some of his authority, his power, his exousia. Repeat after me, exousia. Yeah, so I mentioned before that Mark's account of Jesus' life is obsessed. It, it, it hyper-focuses on Jesus' lordship. And one of the words that points to Jesus' lordship is this word exousia. Repeat after me, exousia. Exousia. Uh, it's the linchpin of Mark's writing about Jesus' lordship. Uh, this is Mark's way of pointing to the fact that Jesus is Lord uh, and specifically the kind of Lord that he is. Jesus teaches uh, with authority in the synagogues or with exousia in the synagogues, not like the scribes who know they have no authority. Or another instance, Jesus casts out demons with authority, not like the magicians of the day with all their incantations and their spells and their special recipes. Uh, Jesus heals with authority, not like the healers of the day who would you know, take money from desperate people and still offer them no cure, even after 12 years. 
Jesus even halts the sea with authority. What Jesus' authority means, and particularly in Mark's gospel, is that it is derived from within Jesus himself. Without any fanfare, Jesus' authority rests on his word alone. It's a really, really beautiful, fun little callback to the creation story where God calls creation into being with nothing but what? His word. Yeah, his word. Uh, No fanfare, no battling with the chaos monsters, no spells and incantations. God doesn't even break a sweat. He simply says, let there be, and there was. Jesus has, Mark says, this kind of authority, like divine word authority, Mark is telling us. And Jesus has so much authority, so much exousia, that he can even give some of it to his disciples. But here's where it gets even more interesting. He specifically gives them authority to do what? To cast out unclean spirits, it says. Jesus gives them authority to cast out unclean spirits or demons or or fallen angels, which would be kind of striking, right? (laughs) So in all seriousness, we may be a little more surprised by this than the disciples in the first century uh, for two reasons. First, because we are living after the first coming of Jesus. After the first coming of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Uh, and yes, the enlightenment, and yes, disenchantment, and yes, all these other things have happened. And you can, you can say whether you prefer or like those things or not. But it is also the case that Christ's first coming actually did something in the cosmos. Which is why we don't often see as much demonic activity as they might have in the first century. Not prepared to defend this point. I don't want to argue this point. Don't want to look at YouTube videos about this point. I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> uh, but here's the second reason. Second reason. Uh, the, what is the first miracle in Mark's gospel? Anybody remember? For 10,000 fellowship points. <laughs> Redeemable for free coffee. All right. Exorcism. Very first miracle in Mark's gospel. Jesus is performing an exorcism. It's right in the synagogue. Uh, in Mark 1, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue with authority, with exousia. There's that word again. Uh, and um, a guy stumbles in with an unclean spirit. And immediately the unclean spirit recognizes Jesus. She rebukes the, the spirit into silence and then commands the unclean spirit to come out of the guy. And it obeys. Now, Mark mentions this, mentions it first, but then over the course of his account of Jesus' life, at least a half dozen other instances of Jesus interacting with unclean spirits, um, Jesus casting out unclean spirits, Jesus silencing unclean spirits. Uh, It seems like Mark is bringing up unclean spirits all the time. So why does Mark keep bringing up unclean spirits? A little context for us, uh, throughout the Old Testament, that I was going to go a whole sermon without mentioning the OT. Uh, so <laughs> throughout the Old Testament, there are a few instances of angels, uh, but we don't hear a ton about unclean spirits and demons. Uh, there's angels in the very first few chapters of the scriptures, Genesis 3, uh, the mighty cherubim who guard the way. They guard the way back into the Garden of Eden. In the Exodus story, we learn that the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire are angels that are guiding God's people. Uh, In Hebrews, we learn that when Moses ascends the mountain of the Lord and he receives the Ten Commandments, the Torah, the law of God, that it is given to him by the angels, the writer of Hebrews tells us. There's a few angels throughout the story of the old, throughout the stories in the Old Testament, but rarely, rarely do we hear anything about unclean spirits or demons or fallen angels. Uh, In fact, we were talking about this during worship planning this week, uh, how few references, if any, there are. I was willing to argue that there were no instances 
is, but then Reverend Dieleman, you can, you can thank him for this little gem. Uh, <laughs> Reverend Dieleman pointed out uh, that in Daniel chapter 10, we actually do see quite a peculiar little moment. Uh, in Daniel chapter 10, we find Daniel as a mature, not just older, but a mature uh, gentleman at that point. Uh, he's probably in his 80s or his 90s. He's lived a really, really long life. Um, and Daniel, Daniel is um, originally from Judah. Daniel's originally from Judah. He would have grown up there up into his teenage years before he was carried into exile into Babylon. Daniel's lived a long life. How many of you are like 80 or 90? Yeah, couple, okay, a couple people there. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> you, you wear that proudly. <laughs> uh, just like Daniel, you probably remember a lot of things, a lot of things about your hometown, a lot of things about Holland. Um, Daniel remembers a lot of things over the course, a lot of places over the course of his life. Uh, Daniel remembers waking up in his family home, maybe for pancakes on a Saturday morning. Daniel remembers going to school with his friends. Daniel remembers the girl that he was supposed to marry. But Daniel also remembers the day that his life and everything that he was hoping for came crashing down around him when Babylon invaded Judah in 587 BC. Daniel remembers the sound of them destroying the city. Daniel remembers seeing them ransacking his family home. Daniel remembers the horror of what they did to his loved ones and his friends. Daniel remembers the blasphemous destruction of the temple. Daniel remembers being carried off into exile and being given a new name and, and being forced into a new identity and even being forced to work for the government that stole them away from their land for decades. And now Daniel is in his 80s, maybe his 90s, and Babylon is no longer in charge. Now it's Persia. And the Persians have not only allowed God's people to return to their homeland, but they've even given them some seed money and some support to rebuild the land, to rebuild the walls, and even to rebuild the temple. But Daniel doesn't go back with them. He remains in Persia as like a strategic liaison for God's people in the royal court. And so as they're rebuilding, he's there corresponding with them. But then eventually something happens. Things fall apart. They get a little bit chaotic. And the building of the temple stops. And so Daniel begins to inquire of the Lord, Lord, what is happening? This is so chaotic. I can't figure out what's going on on my own. I'm gonna go to the Lord and I'm gonna ask the Lord to reveal to me what's going on. And so Daniel fasts from meat and wine for 21 days. If anybody's looking for a fast for Lent, uh, for 21 days, he fasts from meat and, and wine. And after 21 days, an angel of the Lord arrives and says to him, hey, yeah, we heard your prayers from the moment you began praying. We, we started to answer your prayers. Uh, and God sent me with this message to unpack what's going on for you. But there's this other angel, this fallen angel, the prince of Persia. He kind of didn't want me to come see you. And so he was wrestling with me and I was wrestling with him. And for 21 days, we wrestled and we kept wrestling. And then eventually, eventually Michael, the chief angel of the Lord's army, he came to like wrestle with him while I came over here to talk to you. And I'm gonna go back there and keep wrestling with him after I give you this really quick message. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, not going to get into the weeds of this particular passage. It's mostly just an illustration to help us understand a little bit of like the mindset of God's people in the years, the hundreds of years leading up to Jesus, um, around the time of the exile, but in the hundreds of years leading up to Jesus, uh, you start to see a lot of apocalyptic literature. Uh, this is literature in which you start to see a lot of angels. You start to see a lot of fallen, um, fallen angels and demons and unclean spirits, um, so much so that when Jesus enters into, enters into ministry, this is a really, really prominent, not just belief, but experience for people. Uh, it's almost like, 
an earth-shattering event in the lives of people, in the lives of God's people, like the exile, uh, forced them to almost shift their understanding or to edit their understanding of God or the world or humanity and even sin and brokenness in the world. And again, to understand the cosmic nature of sin and death and darkness, that there are powers and principalities, as Paul might say, that's people begin to recognize that sin and death and darkness is not just this uh, individual behavior. It's not just this thing about misdeeds and, and breaking laws and breaking commandments, that there's something bigger happening, that it's almost, that it's almost cosmic-sized, that sin and brokenness in the world is this cosmic-sized problem enslaving creation and humanity. And because it's cosmic-sized, God's people realize that the only, only God only God has the exousia or the power to deal with this cosmic-sized problem of sin and death and darkness in the world and in us. So why does Mark begin with an exorcism? Every pen stroke of Mark's gospel tells us quite emphatically that Jesus Christ is Lord, but Mark is getting at what kind of Lord he is. Mark's gospel seems to show us that the kind of Lord Jesus is, is the kind of Lord who uses his authority, who uses his exousia to heal people from diseases, and he uses his exousia to free people from the demonic forces that have wrought, wrought havoc on their lives, and he uses his authority, his exousia, to revive a little girl from the dead and hand her back to the father who wept over her small frame. So you might say that Jesus is the kind of Lord who not only has power and authority, but who uses that authority to bring healing and restoration and life, who has the power and authority to go up into combat with death itself and to do so on behalf of the humanity that he came to save. Even our unflattering, our rather unflattering story today also tells us something in particular about what kind of Lord Jesus is. He begins teaching in the synagogue. Indeed, if the first miracle in Mark's gospel is an exorcism, the very first use of Jesus' authority is his teaching. What is Jesus doing? He's unpacking the scriptures that reveal God to humanity. Jesus has the power to do all sorts of things. But Jesus' primary mission is to lead men and women, boys and girls, back to the Father. Which is why ultimately Mark tells us that Jesus is the kind of Lord that invites us to trust him. The miracles aren't the point. They're a part of the point. They're a demonstration of the point. But the actual point is trust, to trust the guide who comes to lead us back to God. And the townspeople of Nazareth most certainly do not. Instead, they reject him. And in fact, Jesus is stunned by their unbelief. They're apostion. Repeat after me, apostion. Now, we often think of faith as this purely intellectual thing, and it is related. There is something about that. Uh, but the ancients thought of belief as something that we do with our very being. It's a little bit more bodily, uh, a little bit more in body. To believe is to trust. Here's what I mean. A few years ago, I went climbing um, at a, a climbing gym in the Byron Center area. It's uh, called Inside Moves. Uh, and we had gone to, we started an outdoor adventure group, and um, but six months out of the year in Michigan is like winter and snow. And so we had to come up with some indoor things to do. Uh, and so a climbing gym uh, we went to. And the difference between like, you know, this climbing gym and another one that we've gone to, Terra Firma. Uh, Terra Firma is a bouldering gym. The difference is about like a mat that's like that thick at a bouldering gym. Um, and then also there's no ropes. 
There's no harnesses. There's none of that. And so here, uh, inside moves this place, which that's not me, by the way. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so inside moves, uh, you go there, and they have someone actively like talk you through all of the equipment. Uh, and what to do and when to take the slack out of the rope and all of that. And it's a lot of information to remember, and they know you're not going to remember. So they basically coach you through your first couple of climbs. And so they broke us up into pairs, and I got paired off with a sweet woman at my old church. Uh, we're going to call her Holly uh, Vandersma. Vandersma. And uh, so Holly and I are paired up. I, Holly goes up first. I spot her. I'm, I, I'm the belayer person for her. And, um, and then she comes down, and then I head up. And my hands must have been sweating or something, or maybe I just didn't have enough chalk on them, but I, my hands are on those little grips. And all of a sudden, without warning, I didn't even realize this was going to happen. My fingers like slipped off the grip. And I don't know if I screamed or if Holly Vandersma screamed or maybe both of us screamed, but, but sure enough, um, Holly Vandersma, you know, was starting to take the slack out of the ropes that I didn't hit that very, very thin mat. Uh, but I was not very confident in Holly Vandersma's ability to, um, keep me, <laughs> to keep me from falling, largely because Holly Vandersma... It's like 110 pounds, and I had already put on my winter weight for the season, and so <laughs> so my Holly Vanderson was going to fly off the ground. Well, part of the belaying thing is that you, there's like a little thing. Somebody told me what it was after first service. It's like a little hook in the ground, and they hook the person who's belaying you into it so that when someone who's like, you know, a third more than their size, like starts like falling off the wall the person doesn't fly off the ground into the air in the process, right? So uh, trust is kind of, I learned to trust the equipment and even to trust Holly because of the experience of being in trouble and needing and needing a little bit of help. Uh, Trust is kind of like that. Trust is not this intellectual ascent of Jesus says words and then I trust his words. Trust is an experiential, it's a wrestling, it's a, it's a going back and forth with God in the everyday moments of our lives, the crises, the conflicts that we come to, the things that life presents to us that invite us into a place of deeper trust with God. Trust is at the core of our, trust begins at the core of our being and our experiences, and it brings us to these forks in the road of our faith, these, these places where we have to decide whether we're going to stick to what's familiar or if we're going to discover something deeper about God and about what it means to trust this God and follow after him. And then it works its way up to our minds. And then it comes out of our mouths as we profess our faith, as we become witnesses to the trust that we now have in Christ. Jesus is Lord, but what kind of Lord is he? He's the kind of Lord who invites us to trust him, to put all of our weight on him, to stake everything on him. But the question humanity has been asking since the beginning is, can we trust him? In the garden, Adam and Eve asked, can we trust this God who to give us what we need? For those in Jesus' hometown, can we trust that the fullness of God is somehow standing before us in the motley frame of this carpenter? And for us in our own time, can we really trust this God with our finances, with our relationships, with our failing marriages, with our children, with our careers, with, with even our time, Can we trust this God with our soul? Can we trust this God with eternity? Can we put all of our weight on this God? The scriptures are full of countless examples of men and women who have also wrestled with this question. And sometimes they end up not trusting. They reject. But sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. So what if if we were to follow their example What if, like, as the disciples discovered, we trust that he really is, Christ really is God in the flesh? And what if, like Jairus, we discover that that God isn't really punishing you or your child with a premature death? 
And what if, as the woman who bled for 12 years discovered that he really isn't just teaching you a lesson, using your pain as an, as an object lesson in your life? And what if, as Daniel discovered, that he really does hear our prayers, even if the answer is delayed for days or months or years or centuries or, or maybe even until Christ returns? And what if, as Mark claims, that he really is the son of God who redeems us from the havoc of our lives of sin, of death, and of darkness in the world and within us? And what if, what if, as the prophets proclaim, he really is moving heaven and earth for our good? And what if, as John proclaims, that he really is the fullest expression of God's love for us and within us? Friends, these stories of God's people over years and centuries are not just stories that they learn to profess with their mouths or with their minds. They're stories that are wrapped up in experiences, gut-wrenching experiences that God's people have had, experiences that brought them to deeper trust in the God that we now get to study about and learn about and follow ourselves. So can we trust this God? The answer is an unflinching yes. Yes, he can be trusted. Yes, he can be loved. Yes, even when things are falling apart, he can be hoped in because we trust. Because we trust that he hears us. We trust that he cares for us. We trust that he loves us, that he redeems us, that he restores us. And even when the diseases and the trials and the battles of life are getting the best of us, even when our fingers actually do slip off the rock and there's nothing to catch us, even when the prognosis or the diagnosis turns bleak, we trust because we know that he's the God who moves and continues to move heaven and earth to fight for our good. We trust because he has the authority and the power to redeem us and uses it that way. We trust because we know that he will ultimately vanquish sin, death, and darkness from the cosmos. And we trust, we trust because he is the one that we have found to be and that countless of other people have found to be worthy of our trust and our hope and even our love. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, not only in creation, but in the scriptures that we read. And that um, even, even beyond the scriptures that we read, that you came to us, that you sent the Son into the world to show us who you are. And in him, we find the fulfillment of all those stories that we read, all those stories that we marvel at. Um, in him, we find the one who expresses the fullest, the fullest of your glory and of your love and of your welcome, your hospitality back toward us. And so, Lord, thank you for this revelation of yourself. Thank you for showing us that you are the God who loves us and who cares for us and who redeems us, even when what's in front of us doesn't seem to be pointing that way. All these things, Lord, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, as we respond this morning in song to how God has been speaking to us, I want to draw your attention to the fact that today is the final Sunday before we enter into the season of Lent. We will continue to consider what it means in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is Lord, and especially as we consider his suffering and work on the cross. For many years, churches around the world have engaged in the practice during Lent of abstaining from singing or saying hallelujah and saving it up for Easter Sunday. And so it is on this Sunday today, the last Sunday before Lent, that churches around the world bury the hallelujah they sing it one last time before setting it aside for Easter. So we will engage in this practice this morning and we will sing hallelujah one last time before Easter in this final song. So let's savor it as we offer our praise to the only true Lord, 
the only one worthy of our trust and the one that has conquered death. Would you stand and let's sing together. Yeah. 
one final blessing for us this morning, friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.